Welcome to How to Write a Play. I'm Alex, I work for the Old Fire Station Arts Centre in Oxford, and we're currently running a playwriting course with Triple Olivier Award winner Mike Bartlett. Stay tuned for Mike's advice, writing tips, writing exercises, answers to questions from listeners, and our thoughts on the theatre world in 2023. Today, Mike, what are we covering in the course this week? Well, we sort of underrun, overrun last week, so we didn't get onto dialectic, but it also then brought up a question of form. So we're mostly going to be doing form and then a little bit of dialectic. So coming up at the old fire station this week, we have on the Tuesday the 23rd, we have a taster of our storytelling methodology. So as well as being an art centre, we're also a charity. And the way that we measure the impact of our work is the storytelling evaluation methodology, which is very complex, really. But actually, to try and describe it in a nutshell, we ask people to tell us the story of their experience of the project. And then we get all the stories together And then we see the common themes and what worked and what didn't work from those stories. And I'm making it sound very simple, but it's actually much more in depth than that. And it's a really good way to measure projects. And we've been involved with a lot of different partners, including the Barbican and the RSC and lots of places who want to start using it. And we're running a taster session Tuesday the 23rd. And if you want to find out more about that, you can go to storytellingevaluation.co.uk and see all the stories we've ever collected and all the projects we've ever worked on and how it works. Then on Thursday, the 25th of May to the 27th, we have An Unseasonable Fall of Snow, a comic play from Gary Henderson done by a local theatre company, which is about toxic masculinity and interrogations. It's supposed to be very twisty and turny and fun and good. And then on Sunday, the 28th of May, we have our first Andrew O'Neill's Dead Leg Comedy Club. Andrew O'Neill is a comedian who I'm a big fan of, who's just relocated to Oxford and wants to run a comedy club here. Their first comedy club is going to star Mark Thomas, Beck Hill and Mark Selcox. So really good lineup on that Sunday. They all sound really fascinating. Thank and you. Great. So what are we covering in the course this week? So last week we did an exercise, which I think I mentioned about Prince Harry's timeline. And then we talking about where we would find the story and how you might dramatise that. And that led onto a question of what informs those decisions. We ended up talking about one version where it's a series of duologues between Harry and William from, I can't remember where we started it, but maybe from like university days through to the day of the coronation when they have a conversation there. So you see the sort of changing relationship across that it's got a sort of one form but it's got a changing relationship and then we talked about another version which happens on the night Megan finds out she's pregnant it's all in one place there and that led us on to going well what informs those decisions about how you choose to dramatize your story and all the different options open to you so I thought this week we would look at this question of form so we're going to define what I mean by form to begin with and in my mind it's like the rules of the game so we're going to do an exercise where we're just going to put the the rules of of football on the board what are essential to play a game of football and what isn't essential to play a game of football I'm going to try and boil that down so we get the exact rules because for me that is what form is as a playwright you're going this is what the play requires to be played what is essential so we'll do that with football and then we're going to do it with what we consider to be a conventional theatre play which probably might be cross arch We'll do that. We're doing that really to say that now theatre can be almost anything and it's broken open and that's brilliant and it gives you all sorts of possibilities. But as an artist, it does make you go, well, there are no preconceived rules. I could start anywhere. 
So we're going to look at how you start. Then we're going to take a sidebar into the types of theatre in terms of where the audience are and where the stage is. The other thing we mean with form is the nature of how the play functions across the evening. There's four sort of types of play. There is a graph you draw to illustrate this. Open space, closed space, closed time and open time. Open space and open time means your space can go anywhere. You go to the shops, you could go home, you could go into the desert, you could go to the moon, you can go anywhere. And open time means that time can jump forwards or indeed backwards. But essentially there are time jumps. So the time on stage is not the same as the time in the audience. Well, let's make this into a quiz because that'll be fun. Do you want to give me an example of open space, open time? Angels in America. Yeah, brilliant. Or all Shakespeare plays or most Brecht plays. And we're going to talk about the reasons one would choose these different forms. So one of the things about open time, open space is it enables you to show both the width of the culture to go from this part of London to another part or this part of New York to another part. And also in time, you can demonstrate how things have changed. So it it lends itself towards a depiction of society, a depiction of the whole world, a depiction of history, and to compare and contrast kings and paupers or all different sorts of dynamics. So that's why you might choose that. Then another type of play is the closed space, closed time play, where it takes place in one place over one set period of time with no time jumps. The time on stage is the same as the time in the audience. So if you've got an hour, if it's an hour long play, the characters come in in second one and time goes across the hour, the same for the audience as the characters. And at the end of the play, an hour has elapsed. And if it's closed space, they do that in one place. So there's no jumps in place or jumps in time. Can you think of a a dumb waiter by Harold Pinter? Uh, yeah, I think it is, isn't it? That's, That's a, one a hotel act. room, and they're yeah. just in there. What do you think closed space, closed time play would give you? Why would you choose that form? Usually, it's building towards something's happening. Something's happening at twelve o'clock or whatever, and we've got to. It's, yes, it's yes. got like a time limit, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah, so it like means that anything that you're watching has to be resolved. Yeah, right. Yeah, so it's out. really present. It's like mm-hmm. we feel it's the right nowness now. of it. Yeah, yeah. It's good for pot boilers and building up pressure and tension and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, great. The third type is closed space, open time. So like, yes, the the effect, is that all in one place? I, yeah, I it's is all it, in yeah. the medical yeah. institution. Yes. But does it move between rooms in the medical institution? Yes, it does. See, ah, I think so technically that would make it open space. Open, so it's got to be one space in front Waiting of Waiting for Godot. Yes, Waiting for Godot. And that would almost be, if it wasn't for the interval, that would be closed space close time but the interval means that there is a time jump it's like spot the difference it's good at showing a change by saying here's this place and then after some time has happened or the events have happened or the action of the characters have happened look what's happened to the space look what's happened to contrast the characters a year on from where we started so it's good for sort of the journey the the psychological or depict a culture changing through one space you know the Chekhov is quite it's quite Chekhovian, although his plays do move about a bit. They're normally in one area and you do see the, the sort of progression of time. And then the last one is the rarest one, which is open space, closed time. So that's where you can go anywhere, but the time is the same as the time for the audience. My wife's a theatre director and she did a piece called Sky High when she was at the Glasgow Sits when she was an assistant director. And that piece was about the tower block, the tenement tower blocks being demolished and coming down. And so... I think it took place in the hour running up to that explosion and you'd move between different people all waiting and watching this one thing to happen. But the time would be ticking 
towards the detonation. The other piece that's, that's sort of like this is 24, the TV series. So there you move about, but your time on screen is supposed to be the time that you're watching it. But that's quite rare. And you would choose that probably for something like an event. So one big event that lots of people, it's going to affect lots of people and it's coming and it's coming in 40 minutes, now 30 minutes, now 20 minutes. And that's it really. Those are the four categories. Again, I don't think that anyone really would sit, maybe some people do, but I certainly wouldn't sit down and go, right, I'm going to write an open space, open time play. But just having these categories sort of in your brain thinking, what's the effect of this? Because sometimes you see a play and it's taking place almost all in one place and there's one scene that isn't. And you can totally do that. But it's worth knowing that your one scene is slightly messing with the purity of that form. So if you're going to do it, you really need to be in control of that decision because something's going to have to happen on stage. And also maybe you're letting the air out of that pressure cooker that you've put by putting it in one place. So again, it's not that you need to adhere to these completely, but having those sort of that model in your head is very useful to go to be in control of of the form. So we're going to do that. Then we're going to do a thing, which is I found that in the past I've taken trying to work out what theatre could be. I've looked at live other live events. So most notably a cockfight is a bit like my play cock and a bullfight is like my play bull. And with those, you really want the sort of form and content to come at the same time. But I think they were quite form led in terms of me going, okay, what would a play be like if it was a bullfight? Oh, bulls bullying. Oh, they are bullying. The Oh, so maybe that's the content is bullying and that's the form. We're going to get a bit like we described the rules of football. We're going to describe the rules of a live event, anything. It could be a club. It could be a folk gig. It could be a chess tournament, but describe the rules, describe the atmosphere, describe how it functions. And then once you've got the feel and the rules of it, then trying to think, well, does, what might the content of that form be? What might the play be that would be of that form? And to see if, because we are so normally led by content, we want to write a play about this or this subject in the world or our own experience. But it's it's as legitimate to go, what's the feel I want to create for the audience? What's the experience? And if they had that experience, what would it be reaching for in terms of meaning? You can come at it that way completely. So we're going to have a listen to what they come up with. Then hopefully, if we've got time, dialectic is quite a tricky thing to do in a workshop now. What you want to do is getting people to argue on controversial subjects on both sides. That used to feel fine. And now that feels a little bit tricky because it might not feel like a safe room, like you want it to be a safe room. And by the way, maybe that was always tricky, but people didn't feel that they could say. And now they do feel they could say. And that's a really good thing. But you certainly want everyone in the room to feel safe, but equally... You don't want everyone in a play to feel safe. You don't want your writing or your characters to feel safe because that's not, that's like almost the opposite of drama, isn't it? So I've been trying to think of a way in which we can do an exercise to attack this while keeping everybody safe and feeling happy. So this solution, this is where I've got to, and we'll see how we do, which is everyone thinks of a divisive issue where the country hasn't yet reached a conclusion and they try and phrase it as a question where there's a yes or no answer. And I'm going to encourage people to be as specific as possible. And it doesn't have to be something that affects everybody, but it has to be something that we also are aware of. We might sort of specify that there's certain, like maybe try and avoid identity issues, because I think that's that's probably one of the trickiest things for people in the room. We don't need that for the purpose of this exercise. You know, why I was thinking, I mean, this might be an identity issue, but a thing like holiday homes for people in Cornwall, that's a divisive issue. Should Should you be able to have second homes or is that destroying a community or is it feeding the community? I don't think we necessarily have all reached a consensus about that in the country. So that might be the sort of thing, something like that. 
And then I think, Alex, you should check all of the things that people have written to make sure that they are yep. okay. Yep. Not in terms of whether or not we agree with any of them, but just that any. But we this don't is going to be really unpleasant yeah. in the room. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think there is a reason why I'm describing the care about this is that I think sometimes people think you can't deal with difficult subjects in a room because people are going to get upset or worried and you, oh, you can't say anything now. And I think you absolutely can. You just need to look after people and find ways of making sure everyone's all right with what you're doing. So we'll do that and then get people into pairs and they will then pick one of these issues that people have written and it'll be, it'll be a surprise to them. So they haven't picked their own and they don't know who's connected with what. They can opt out if they don't want to talk about that thing. They can opt out, they can pick a different one or not do it or whatever. And then the two of them have the argument. One is yes and one is no to this question arbitrarily. They pick yes and no before they get the subject. And then they argue it for a minute and then we swap them around. So that one, the one who said yes, says no and the other way. And I'm going to encourage them. And I think this is the crucial bit of it to sincerely get behind the argument they're making and not to let the other person know with an eyebrow or a smile or a roll of the eyes what they really think. Because I think one of the things that plays, it's a very understandable thing for writers to do, is to almost pretend to stage an argument about a subject, but do something in the form of the play or the characters that just winks at the audience, say, I'm actually cool and this is what I really think, which is the same as you, so don't worry. Whereas actually sometimes you want the audience to worry a little so that they're thinking, so that there might be more to this subject that's more complicated than they imagined and that's the whole joy of staging arguments on stage is that there can be a, a real investigation of something that we then don't have to have in life we can do it on stage in a in a in a fictional environment but it might get us thinking and also might get us either more compassionate in real life or more focused or more activated or whatever but we're only going to get there if the argument is given really good faith on both sides so we're going to do that with two people and sort of try and talk about that and talk about how difficult that can be. And then maybe we'll do the exercise from last week about writing on two different sides as well. That sounds like a lot. Don't know if we'll get through all of that, but that's the plan. I have some letters from listeners. Brilliant. This is so exciting. Listeners, please do send in your letters to us. Info at oldfirestation.org.uk. The first one comes from Dave from Stratford-upon-Avon. Hello, Alex and Mike. I hope this email finds you well. I've just discovered your podcast and I wanted to let you both know how much I've enjoyed the first two episodes. I wrote a play during lockdown that I had developed or procrastinated over for years, but then once relative normality returned, ended up back in a drawer. I'm very proud of what I've created and have received lots of positive feedback from people on the periphery of the theatre world. I'm just rediscovering it again after a flurry of doubts, given the unconventional structure I've chosen. Mike's comments about Tony Kushner's thoughts on story and dialectic really chimed with me and gave me a much needed boost. My question is, When you get to the stage of needing or wanting to workshop your play so you can hear it and get it on its feet, what advice does Mike have for first-time writers in terms of making that happen? In other words, how do I find willing collaborators, actors in particular, without breaking the bank? In a way, this is part of what we're trying to do with the course here. One of the things that I found invaluable is to have a community of people around you, not really online, because in theatre you need to be able to be in the same room. So an actual proper community of theatre makers in your area I think art centres and, and all of those sorts of things, they are generally full of really cool people because they're not paid very much and they're there for the love of it and they're there because they really believe in the importance of art. And so I suppose knocking on that door and seeing who's there and if they can offer any advice of people that they know locally because they will be a hub of all different sorts of people in the community. 
one thing you can do, and what, what I remember we did in London when we were writing, I said we, I mean, like there was a sort of group of us playwrights who were mid-20s I and mean, none of us could get our play on. So we all just got together and basically got a pub theatre room for the first Monday of every month. We all wrote a short play every month that was experimental, that pushed what our form and what we could do. And, and we deliberately didn't invite anyone from the industry. It was just to kind of practice. And then we got friends who were actors of all different types and directors to just come and quickly stage this 20-minute play. And then basically the audience was made up of us and our friends. And we did it first Monday of every month. And we made ridiculous pieces of work that will never see the light of day again. But there were some pieces of that which came out and became proper plays. And that was just something we did amongst ourselves. You need like three or four people, I think, to be a bit like-minded. And then you can start to build something up. Because if you've got even 10 of you and you all invite five people, you've got an audience. And the most important thing is not really whether it's a professional actor or whoever performing it, although obviously the, the more accurate and the better the performance can be, the more use it is. But the most important thing is to hear the play in front of an audience. That will give you a good 60, 70% that you need to know about the play and also to know what your reaction to that is. Do you completely hate it? Do you hate, as the first time I did it, I hated 90% of it, but I love 10% of it. And that 10% was enough to sort of keep me going and know that was what I wanted to do. Do you have any advice on that? Because you must have a lot of people coming and knocking on your door and saying, how do I move this forward? Yeah, it's a question we get fairly often. And my answer is usually find the networks. Yeah. So there's a number of networks here in Oxford, Oxfordshire Theatre Makers, Oxford Playwrights, who do a lot of work together and are a hub for different people to come in. So usually say, join these groups, email these people, find the kind of key connectors and then see who's there and see what they want to do and work with them and find other theatre makers who want to help because we're a collaborative bunch generally, mm. theatre makers. I think people think that there's only one way to put on a play and that's you take it to a theatre and the theatre put it on for you. And I think that that is a way which is increasingly unlikely to happen because of the current funding situation and number of theatres doing new work. So I think we all need to work together and find like-minded people and make work together and do work in a less formal way. And that's the joy of being a collective in a smaller town or village. So go to Stratford-upon-Avon and ask the other theatre people. I lived in Stratford-upon-Avon for two years and there are lots of people there who are very interested in theatre and don't have anything to do with the RSC. Thank you, Dave. Great questions. Our next email is from Emma. Hi there, I've come across your podcast today after setting my heart on writing a play. As a writer who's a little new to this, I found it very useful and a trusty guide. Thanks, Emma. Emma has a number of questions, so I'll ask you a couple now and then might save the rest for future episodes. So how do you make sure that key dramatic moments have a truly strong impact on the story? If they are truly dramatic moments, they'll be like one-way doors that the character now can't go back because something's changed permanently or certainly it's escalated permanently that it can't really be undone. And if you care about the character, that both will move the story forward because that kind of is the story. The series of those things happening is your story. And if we care about the character, it will have an impact on the audience as well because we'll recognise, oh, they've just realised that massive thing in their life about their parents and that will never be the same. They can never see their parents like that again or whatever. 
that's actually part of the planning process of, and maybe this is something we should do next week, actually, is talk about how you, there's more specifically about how you plan a play. So I've talked quite a lot about instinctively writing and just sort of starting with dialogue, which I love to do, but there are other plays that I've absolutely planned and redrafted the plan. And part of that is going, well, what is a scene? And in a scene has to have a main event. And that main event is like one of the things we're talking about with this question, which is a dramatic moment where the character goes through, kind of goes through a one-way door they can't come back from. And that event moves the whole story forward. It might be a revelation, it might be an action. And the series of those means if you told the story of the play, if you described each of those actions in a scene, it would tell the story of the play. That's a good question. Maybe we should get into that in detail next time. Emma also asked for advice about dialogue. Monologues aside, a good or a bad thing, how to sound not too theatrical or cliche, yet still make dramatic impact. I'd say read a lot of plays. I think read and and listen to plays as well. Like people used to say, you go and hear a play rather than see it. And there are still directors. I say still, like it's an antiquated thing. I don't think it is. There are directors who actually, when they're sat in the room, don't really look, they listen. Dialogue and the sound of the play and the music of it is really the primary form. I know it's controversial and there's lots of visual and you can do amazing visual things, but particularly in a world of Netflix and TV and big televisions and spectacle like that, theatre will absolutely compete in different ways and it's a personal, sensational thing, but human contact and therefore the voice and the sound of it is one of the most distinctive things. So the more that you can immerse yourself in that and understand the difference between dialogue and speech, the better. And I would just to say what I think the difference is and this is a good exercise you can do if you record some people talking just normally and then transcribe it carefully, every single um, uh, started, finished sentence, whatever, and then compare that to dialogue that you read in a play, you'll see they are completely different. So dialogue is not an attempt to represent the naturalistic real-life speech normally. It's as formal and as stylized as a, a painting is of the real world. And it needs to echo the ways people speak or feel like it or have some relationship to it, or even comment on it, actually. If you're writing perhaps posher characters, you write in a different mode to if you write working-class characters. But that's all part of your style. And I think rather than, I think, finding your authentic singular voice, because you're not writing in your voice most of the time, it's about learning a facility to let a character speak and to learn their rhythms and learn, are they staccato? Do they do short sentences all the time or not? What, who, what, you know, are they that? Or are they very fluid and very relaxed? And they just follow one sentence into another and that's how they've gone through their whole life from public school all the way into thing. And do you understand that's one, you know, it's, it's the way in which the rhythm and the tone of speech on who a character is and how an audience learns who they are is instant. You know, if you can do it in five words, if you get the rhythm right, regardless of what those five words are. So that's part of the joy of writing a play, is to learn how to communicate character and intention through rhythm and mode, as well as through the words. And on the flip side, just to say, while we're talking about it, people have said about that not all Tom Stoppard characters sound like him, but they all went to the same school. So although there's not like, you don't have one voice, inevitably, you need to trust that in the end, a lot of you will come through all of your work, whether you like it or not. And that's great. But it's listening and, and experiencing and then practice, just write more and more dialogue and enjoy writing in different forms until you feel adept with it. Thank you, Dave and Emma, for your questions. Please do send in thoughts, feelings, questions, updates on your writing to info at oldfirestation.org.uk. Any last thoughts? 
it's great that people are writing in and it's really lovely to think that they are writing and the question about community and finding people to do your play I think is so crucial to why I wanted to do this in the first place and I love the idea that people might be writing plays and and forming groups and connections and if you are also in Stratford upon Avon then right here we can pick you up with Dave and you know true with anyone you know I think that would be great wouldn't it if people can start to make those connections the great thing about writing is that you can do it on your own in your house and you don't have to have anybody else but the other great thing about theatre writing is that you do need other people both those elements are really important I think great for introverts who also want some friends which is why a lot of playwrights couldn't really write in lockdown because we had the first thing lots of time on our own but we didn't have any friends and therefore well we can't don't have the energy to you know so that's really important if you have heard this tell us about how you've made connections and found ways of getting your work on lovely thank you see you next time How to Write a Play is hosted by Mike Bartlett and Alex Polk. Editing and music is by Hannah Gallardo Parsons and it's produced by the Old Fire Station, Oxford. Please support us by giving five-star ratings and reviews wherever you get your podcasts to help us get seen by more theatre makers. This show receives no exterior funding. If you'd like to support the work of the Old Fire Station, please donate at oldfirestation.org.uk.